This podcast may include adult content. Bound Off is an independent, nonprofit audio magazine committed to paying authors for their work. To join us in our mission of broadcasting great stories to a worldwide audience, please consider dropping us a dollar or two at boundoff.com slash donate. Welcome to Bound Off, a literary audio broadcast. In this edition, we have three stories. U.S. Irregular by Michael K. Myers, The Woman Who Could Smell the Future by Alexander Danner, and The Legend of Christopher Mason by Dave Early. U.S. Irregular, written and read by Michael K. Myers. Listening time, 10 minutes, 16 seconds. U.S. Irregular. Cop talks. Yak yak cop talk, says. Slathering fellow, bad business. Cop says, slathering him. Run size, run of the mill product of twisty tree. The kid. Cops say, I'm him, slathering. The whole bunch of them, no cream on top, nonetheless, Cop says. Shake vigorously. While yak-yakking, Cop, multitasking, goes akimbo, goes unakimbo, returns to akimbo, and seeks more amicable location for genital family. Cop, Relocation confirmed by absence of akimbo and unakimbo, refocuses on yak-yak, saying, Him, slathering, is... Cop clears throat, um, glances left-right, right-left, seeking, it is presumed, ideal locale to receive spittle, finds none, swallows, and five-count pats himself on the back, then downshifts, says to himself, says, self, cease cop yak yak, and replace with demo of cop pursuit run, and pumping arms, pumping legs, cop runs in place, his hope, to impress a certain her, and who is this her she is a, a lower lip swollen personage, elaborate and lacquered due, reorganized into facsimile of failure, who, when standing as she is, assumes the shape of the letter C, and does so because no other option is available to spinally saddened C-shaped. Fat-lipped C-shape studies the floor between her feet, no shoes, bunions, ruined, angry hose, and cop shoes, as if cops thinks this, because cop floor is of interest to C-shape, which it is not. And cop, pumping arms, legs running in place, demoing his intent, cop pursuit run to fat-lipped um, C-shape. His hope being to show C-shaped how cop appears when giving all-out effort in the cause of justice for the cause of the American way. As cop runs in place, he multitasks and creates a wish list. Wish number one, I wish for fat lip C-shaped to, paraphrase, admire the muscular swell of my cop ardor and forgive me for knocking her down, 
ruining her dew and fattening her lower lip. Oh, wish number two. Number two, wish interrupted by cop's nervous system, informing cop that he is out of breath. Cop, um, hands on knees, mouth gaping, waits for breath to catch up, and also for applause from, from C-shaped fat lip for demo of cop ardor. When no applause forthcoming, breath-deprived cop reasons. Reason number one. C-shaped fat lip is no daffy duck, but is rather number two. A wily coyote type who knows all he, cop, seeks is detente. And sadly, cop realizes that C-shaped wily coyote has not decided if she will or will not bestow on cop signed and notarized copy of desired detente. While cop experiences the the above. C-shaped, fat-lipped, wily coyote receives communique from herself. Communique reads, um, you must run to the ladies' room right now and go pee. Before doing so, C-shape extends to cop much desired detente, or rather, C-shape on verge of extending desired detente swallows desired detente, replacing it with Foo you, foo you. And C-shape relaxes sphincter. Urine flows, forms puddle around her feet, which for a moment resembles her deceased husband. And the following is from POV of cop and in cop words, urine moves in direction of my cop shoes. C-shape fat lip reaches, gesture characterized by, by words abrupt and brutal, into her purse, strap rudely torn, leatherette exterior scuffed, retrieves cell phone and punches cell in various places numerous times. Cop thinks, not local call. Cop thinks, C-shaped fat lip attempts contact with moon, where inside fancy igloo, titanium igloo, a, a coven of C-shaped personal injury attorneys reside. While C-shaped awaits response from moon, cop becomes hyper-aware of tick-tock, tick-tock of huge, unforgiving, no sense of humor, glass-cover cracked wall clock. C-shaped um, speaks into cell in, cop thinks this, must be out-of-town version of U.S. Irregular, and while listening, multitasks. Entire genital family relocated. Access to pool, swing set, mega flat screen, three-story atrium with ceiling fan. The works. C-shape stops talking and listens head going up, down, left, right, up, down, left, right, as she does. Fat-lipped C-shape shifts gears. No longer speaks out-of-town version of U.S. irregular, but rather downshifting speaks untranslatable dot-dash talk. Cop takes one giant step away from urine puddle, amoeba-like inching toward his right cop shoe. From Sour grape expression on face of fat lip C-shape. Cop understands dot dash talk is flip side. 
is B-side of good news, causing Cop's sphincter to go clenched tight. As C-shape listens to message from Moon, she morphs, becomes momentarily the capital letter I, and as capital letter I, fat-lipped C-shape, using her, her eyes, bores nine-millimeter-sized entry wound into the bone box of cop, then returns to form herself, returns to C-shape, and peruses urine puddle that, that currently resembles the Statue of Liberty just a little. And reverting to U.S. irregular, C-shape says to invisible um, someone inside igloo on cratered surface, such and such and so and so and more and more, and then punches cell. One punch, taekwondo, MMA, and, and drops cell into purse, then clears her fat-lipped C-shaped throat, allowing glob of just then drawn from great depth phlegm to tumble from center of her fat and discolored lower lip and fall into urine puddle, experiencing transitional Dali phase. C-shaped speaking U.S. irregular says to cop, must go now says, must go away from you from cop house right now, right now, now. She says more. She says, this and that. Her words, when tabulated, equal bad news. C-shaped, gone, cop removes cigarettes. Viceroy, hard pack from jacket pocket, takes one. Smacks filter-tipped end twice against face of digital wristwatch and says, Tom Boot lights up, inhales, six count, exhales through nose, seven count, or record, repeats, um, says to the cops in cop house, Tom Boot, Tom Boot in a stone place. Well, the cops seated at the desk under huge glass cover, cracked wall clock, speaking from side of mouth through near invisible slit, says, Duncan Key Alice. He says again, louder, longer, Duncan fucking Key Alice. All cops, six, maybe eight, do, do flash, quick, Quick flash glance at cops seated under wall clock and in unison or almost so head nod to desk seated cop. Desk seated cop leans back, puts feet atop desk and laughs. Big time goes ha ha. And then all cops, loud, distinct, a chorus, go ha ha ha. Then repeat all of above. Repeat all of above. Michael K. Myers teaches in the graduate writing program of the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. His work has appeared in Quick Fiction, Nano, Fringe, Mad Hatter's Review, Ninth Letter, Chicago Noir, The New Yorker, Fiction, and Chelsea. Museums worldwide have presented his performance art. The Woman Who Could Smell the Future, written and read by Alexander Danner. Listening time, 8 minutes, 8 seconds. The Woman Who Could Smell the Future, by Alexander Danner. The woman who could smell the future understood that she was a joke, a bland pun, 
too weak to merit a groan. A mishap of science with slightly less merit than Silly Putty. If she were in a comic book, she'd be a fourth-rate guest star for a third-rate hero. The sort of heroine who gets killed off in a crassly commercial, multi-part, company-wide crossover in order to generate a little bit of cheap shock and posthumous buzz. But she wasn't a comic book heroine, not even a fourth-rate one. She was just a girl with a name, Jordan, and a job, copywriter, and a boyfriend, Mark, and a very small temporal distortion permanently lodged in her left nostril. It wasn't very useful. She certainly hadn't figured out any way to make money from it. You can't smell lottery numbers or prime stocks. Her power hadn't given her any athletic or artistic talent. You can't literally sniff out crime, no matter what the popular metaphors tell you. In fact, here's a comprehensive list of all the uses Jordan had found for her talent. Number one, she always had an umbrella when she was going to need one. Two, she knew when her friends were planning surprise parties for her. She could smell the candles. Three, she deftly avoided other people's flatulence. Not much satisfaction there, as she'd have already encountered the odor hours earlier. And four, she knew when buildings were going to catch fire. This last, of course, seems pretty useful. And it was. Over the course of her life, she had doused dozens of fires before they could threaten lives or property. She had even considered becoming a professional firefighter. But fire departments don't want people who can predict fires. People who predict fires are usually only able to do that because they set the fires in the first place. After the third time she was investigated for arson, Jordan pretty much gave up trying to warn anyone about fires at all. Instead, she just bought herself a good fire extinguisher, showed up where she was needed, and slipped away before anyone could ask her any questions. This had required her to learn a bit of lockpicking as well, but fortunately Jordan was good with her hands. She played a little piano, too. So, those are the pertinent details that led up to Jordan's present situation. Hiding in an empty room, across from the office of a magazine editor, long after business hours, hoping to prevent a murder. Yes, she'd actually sniffed out crime for once. Even she rolled her eyes at that realization. The editor's name was Elliot Clark, and Jordan had been in his office 12 hours earlier, interviewing for a freelance gig with the publishing house's new magazine on container gardening. It was dull work. But Jordan had an opening in her schedule and was really hoping to put aside some money for a trip to Wisconsin. She'd always enjoyed both cold weather and cheese, so Wisconsin seemed something of a Shangri-La to her. The interview was proceeding well. Jordan was personable and well-qualified, so she had a better-than-fair chance at the job. Halfway through the interview, however, Jordan became distracted by an unmistakable odor. The acrid tang of gunpowder hung about the room, roughly twelve hours hence. She recognized the odor immediately. She'd been shot once herself, when she broke into a paper warehouse to put out a fire started by a faulty coffee pot. The night watchman naturally felt awful once he found out that the intruder he'd shot had actually saved the warehouse. But then he was fired, and he didn't worry so much about Jordan after that. Jordan was fortunate in that instance, the shot had only grazed her arm, and the paper company had been only too happy to cover her medical expenses, in light of the major catastrophe she had averted. 
Still, it had been among the most frightening experiences of her life, and the associated scent had stayed with her ever since. So, now here she was, hiding in a conference room, spying on her potential future employer, whom she still hoped was going to hire her to write 3,000 words about stupid little potted herbs. For the moment, Clark was alone, which suggested the possibility of suicide rather than murder. But Clark didn't look much like he was planning to kill himself. He was working at his computer, plugged into an iPod, bobbing his head to whatever tune he was listening to. He was obviously under deadline pressure, or he wouldn't be at the office so late at night, but he didn't much seem to mind being there either. Sure enough, after several minutes, another figure appeared. A woman in her mid-thirties, decidedly peeved in expression, and carrying, surprise, a modest handgun. At least now Jordan knew who was planning to shoot whom. That question had given her some worry. It would be humiliating to come to the aid of the wrong person, only to make the killer's work that much easier. And so, with all pertinent mysteries resolved, it was officially time for the ridiculous part. Jordan sighed heavily and hefted her fire extinguisher. She had no real weapons, so she had decided to just stick with the equipment she already knew, and quietly waited for the woman to turn her back. She didn't have to wait long. The woman was quite direct about her task, heading straight to Clark's door and raising the gun. A short blast from the fire extinguisher was enough to distract her. As she began to turn, Jordan brought the extinguisher down on her head, hard enough to knock her out, though she hoped not hard enough to cause any permanent damage. The gun discharged once, as she had known it would have to, but the bullet passed harmlessly through a wall into the empty office next door, where it lodged in the side of another editor's desk. Jordan kicked the gun away from the woman, across the hall and into the conference room she'd been hiding in. Clark, finally on his feet by this point, was looking back and forth between Jordan and the shooter with some distress. Do I know you? he asked. No, said Jordan, before making her exit. Back home, she deposited her shoes, coat, and fire extinguisher in the coat closet, as she did every evening. It was late, and Mark had already eaten. Now he was relaxing with a glass of beer, something dark and malty that he had brewed himself. The basement was perpetually cluttered with bottles and vats of his ongoing projects. If only she had such a practical skill. How was the interview, he asked, putting his beer down on the coffee table. Jordan sighed as she dropped down beside him on the couch. It went fine at first, but the guy seemed pretty distracted by the end, said Jordan. Honestly, I'm not sure he'll even be that focused on filling the position. I'm sorry, Mark said, winding his arms around her from the side as he placed his chin on her shoulder. But it really didn't sound like an assignment you'd have enjoyed anyway. You can do better. Maybe, she said. I'd like to. She sniffed, not really meaning to spy on the future, but there it was anyway. Blueberries. Blueberry pancakes several hours off. Breakfast. And a few days after that... Dirt? Dirt and basil? Oregano? I don't know, she said. Maybe it went better than I thought. After a moment, she stood and stretched. Anyway, I think I'll turn in early, she said, leaving Mark to his beer. She wasn't long in falling asleep. 
and in her sleep she dreamed that she could do better, that she was better. In her dream, she could outrun bullets or snatch them from the air. In her dream, Wisconsin was within her grasp any time she wanted it. In her dream, she could fly. Alexander Danner contributed to the Machine of Death fiction anthology. His comics appear at 27letters.com and picturestorytheater.com. He teaches writing the graphic novel at Emerson College. The Legend of Christopher Mason, written by Dave Early, read by Mark Rushton. Listening time, 12 minutes, 57 seconds. The Legend of Christopher Mason, by Dave Early. There is an unhealthy balance to be maintained within a communal environment, an unnatural order by which to abide. We as a race are individually advised to feel at ease with ourselves, in order to establish a harmonious relationship with others. But human suspicion trips up any possibility of a natural congruent community. The primal vanity of another can, and invariably will, upset the flow of one man's personal contentment. The presumptions of women, in particular, Christopher was loath to discover, can create a vile dissension in the ranks, and even, in circumstances not quite as unusual as some might imagine, go as far as to bring about the ultimate destruction of the commanding officer. Christopher Mason loved his job. It was what made him who he was. He was happy, his staff was happy, and productivity was soaring. It all came down to his personal work ethic, indeed the maxim for conducting his entire life. Feel at one with yourself and all shall be fine. Naturally, such peace cannot be acquired overnight. It takes time and reason, and ultimately a great comfort in one's surroundings. When Christopher Mason first arrived at Fleetfoot Holdings Limited, as a mid-level executive, he realized he had to make a very good formal impression upon his new employers. It takes years of association for people to shrug off individual idiosyncrasies that might otherwise, right at the start of a relationship, horrify them. He had spent the previous two years in Ontario, working for a large firm in a small role. For the most part, he had enjoyed his brief tenure on the other side of the Atlantic, spending much of his free time in casinos and strip joints, in order to shed some of the tension of the strict environment his bosses had shaped. When he received a telephone call from the London-based company one Saturday morning in response to his application, Christopher considered his options carefully. The man on the other end of the line spoke with a nice, normal, expensively educated accent, and was willing to hand Christopher the job there and then over the phone, seemingly for reciprocal reasons. And so as Christopher lay spread-eagled in his underpants and socks on the floor of his flat chair, coming round from a typically ruthless night out, he decided it was time to go home. The atmosphere at Fleetfoot Holdings Limited was similar to its Canadian counterpart, though with, of course, the fundamental difference that it was an English-speaking country. The company was considerably smaller, which initially made Christopher feel a little claustrophobic. But as his professionalism dictated, he was prepared to suffer the preliminary strain of acclimatization in order to impress his new employers. And for the first three probationary months, he would arrive at the office pressed into an immaculate tailored suit, and by the end of the day, there would not be a solitary crease out of place. And the work itself went all right. He was hardly setting the world alight, with his contribution to the intimately sized firm, 
but that, as he knew, was simply down to the fact that he was still relatively new to the place. Over the ensuing weeks, Christopher Mason began to relax. He had found his footing, made several promising working relationships among the staff, and the workload was easily dealt with. He had started arriving at the office, still excluding a most professional air, it has to be said, without wearing a tie, which was in itself an acceptable change to his colleagues, as his smile had grown wider and his personal productivity had increased. Nobody really took any notice. After all, what's in a tie? Christopher Mason was a decent enough sort. He was one of their own, and, dash it, if a respectable employee cannot express his ease with those with whom he works, then what in heaven's name is the world coming to? By the time he entered his second year at Fleetfoot Holdings, Christopher Mason cut both a popular figure amongst his co-workers and a valued employee in the esteemed eyes of the company director. He had already made promotion to senior executive, and despite the haste of his advancement, none of his contemporaries begrudged the man his dues. Besides, he was a pleasant chap to have around the place. A permanent grin stretched beneath his nose, never raised his voice beyond normal haughty decibels, readily available for a chin wag over the accounts. Even during October and November, when the workload hit its densest run, Christopher Mason was never to be seen wearing a frown or to be heard uttering a harsh word. And the fact that he started coming into work, though nobody could recall from which point, without his suit jacket, somehow made him more accessible as a managerial figure. The firm was making remarkable strides, crediting an impressive turnover and Christopher's influence was on the rise. It had taken another two years, but he was now pacing around the office in his shirts, pants, and socks. His free-flowing, musing, was an inspiration to all of those around him, and his ingenuity was beginning to rub off on some of the younger members of staff. Mr. Nicholas Hamilton Green, director of Fleetfoot Holdings Limited, had not been totally blind to the new boy's storming arrival on the scene, and in between hotel luncheons and cocktails at the gym, he proposed Christopher adopt an even more senior position at the company, with an equally senior salary. A princely sum, Mr. Hamilton Green assured Christopher, one that nearly rivaled his own, give or take fifty thou per annum. Christopher gladly accepted, and in order to pacify the burden of this additional responsibility, the shirt came straight off. Christopher appointed the appropriate people in order to accomplish his aims. He wanted to spark a united spirit among the team, one with meaning and purpose, a one-for-all-and-all-for-one mentality. And this time he would not be dragooned into incorporating those who were less respectful of the house colors. A substantial bond was being formed among the workers, from top to bottom. It would be harsh to call it a click, and there was no room for such austerity under the new relaxed regime. Owing to the old boys' scouting network, any fresh faces which joined the team quickly accepted their leader's unconventional lack of dress sense, and mild eccentricity fueled a great sense of camaraderie within the firm. Christopher's behavior never lost the respect of his personnel, for his business acumen was unquestionable, and the environment in which they worked together was as tranquil as it was professional. Indeed, after a while, they barely noticed when their highly valued boss finally lost his underpants. But the matter did not go completely unobserved. For a brief episode, company meetings were a touch awkward. One of Christopher Mason's original acts of power, following his takeover of the company, was to demolish the tall, intimidating, oval table in the conference room. 
Such a barrier inhabits the flow of imagination, he protested. And imagination is the key to success. Instead, he suggested, for he did not believe in insisting, those in meetings he chaired should jot down any notes they deemed necessary by balancing the pad on the thigh, in a more casual manner than perhaps to which other businesses were accustomed. Without the large screening table, it took a couple of these meetings to overcome the sight of the boss, seated but naked, wearing only a look of extreme concentration as members of the team bounced ideas off the walls. But this mild discomfiture was short-lived. Almost all the employees had been to either Charterhouse or Haleybury, and the sight of a middle-aged naked man in close proximity was tantamount to relief. The meetings were conducted in a centrified fashion, and it was always plain to see which of the items being tossed around the room stimulated Christopher. Fleetfoot Holdings Limited was a happy place. The employees were happy, Mr. Hamilton Green was happy, the banks were happy, and all because Christopher Mason was happy. Then she had to go and ruin everything. During a rare week's hiatus from the office for Christopher, the continuing comfort of his job had left him in need of some action and adventure, so he headed down to the wilds of North Devon for a spot of masquerading at one of, the, one of his aunt's madcap vicars and tarts parties. He had entrusted his team to fend for themselves. In this tranquil milieu, where delegation was far from a dirty word, somebody, we shan't name names, took it upon themselves to cover the provincial loss of a colleague who had contracted a nasty head cold in the bath with a non-vetted personage of the public variety from a temp agency. When Miss Caroline Shank strode into the office in her pencil skirt and full-chested blouse, the men behind their desks fell dreadfully silent, as if a lady had just walked in on them all in the gents' toilets. A hammering of contradictory thoughts swept through the men's minds. Way hey possibilities converging with quick hide-the-tackle terror. To the Brotherhood she was very attractive, in the way that she was a girl. Her hair was long, she had breasts, her voice was high, and her bottom wiggled when she walked. She was unlike anything most of them had ever seen before. Miss Shank split the room right down the middle. Being in her late twenties, she was young enough for the older boys to behave boisterously, speaking really loudly at her whilst avoiding direct eye contact, and old enough for the younger recruits to come to her with their paper cuts and guilt-ridden tones. This divided conduct, although never changing, settled into the norm over the following five days, and nobody thought to mention the female's arrival to Christopher when he eventually returned to duty early Monday morning. In spite of the calm ambiance of the workplace, Monday was invariably a day for meetings. That was the law. Miss Caroline Shanks had scurried late into the office, as fast as her pencil skirt would permit, to find everybody seated in a circle behind the glass windows of the conference room. She crept in apologetically and, casting her eyes around the room for a seat, she suddenly emitted a squeal. Her eyes, mouth, and nostrils gaped at the naked man seated serenely in one of the chairs. The naked man looked back at her, chewing his lip to ascertain whether or not she was actually in the right place. And then when a 27-year-old business graduate from Cambridge boomed out in an introduction, the naked man, or Christopher as we know him, smiled pleasantly and beckoned Caroline towards an empty chair beside him. It was clear to everyone except Christopher that Miss Shanks was having some trouble adjusting to Fleetfoot Holdings Limited procedure. She held her notepad tightly to her chest throughout the duration of the meeting, 
and it took a good hour to get anything constructive out of her. Unlike the other boys, Christopher had been around. The presence of this woman was, for him, nothing more than the company of another cheery soul to enliven the team, though he did find himself wondering when exactly it was that Charterhouse had started admitting girls. It was an idle thought, however, and realizing he needed to be concentrating on the critical points of the meeting's agenda, setting an example to all, he stretched back in his chair during one of young Newton's proposals, only to elicit an involuntary scream from Miss Shanks. Her rather unnecessary outburst had startled everyone, and it took several minutes for the room to resume its professional air. Despite thinking she was in a madhouse, Miss Shanks did her best to contribute to the topics on the metaphorical table and tried her damnedest to keep her gaze trained at eye level at all times. This she achieved with great aplomb, and after only a short while, Caroline's input to the meeting was substantial, citing specific areas of growth that they as a firm should examine. She was growing into the role quite nicely, and might have seen it through to the end had Christopher, who had grown quite excited by the new recruit's take on the company's standing, not shown his approval so emphatically. After that, it all went downhill for Christopher Mason. The inquiry Caroline Shanks had insisted upon led to his immediate dismissal. The negative press Fleetfoot Holdings Limited received meant that none of the devoted employees stood by him, not even Mr. Hamilton Green, whom it transpired had plenty of other reasons to want to elude an external investigation into his company. Christopher's reputation was irrevocably tarnished, and no other company in the country would touch him because of the references to, quote, gross indecency splashed across the newspapers. What he had started as a group, he was left to rue in total isolation. It was a case of one for all and all abscond. And to what avail? The business world had lost a visionary, and Christopher Mason had lost all that he loved, and with it, the person he used to be. The End Dave Early is seldom smarter than the average bear. Listener-supported Bound Off is made possible by grants from the Kern Family Endowed Fund and the President's Fund of the Greater Cedar Rapids Community Foundation. Further support comes from the Google Grants Program. Thanks for listening to this edition of Bound Off, copyright Bound Off and the respective authors. All rights reserved. Visit our website at boundoff.com for information about our broadcasts and how to submit your stories.